Welcome to Live at the Napa. You're here with JB and David Cunningham. And hey, JB, today a gnarly conversation about the efficiency and productivity of New Zealand. So, can I start with a story? Yeah, go for it. So, I'm down here at a Wellington business called the Home Loan Shop, soon to be rebranded Squirrel. And when I come in here, I base myself in Auckland for three days a week, and I come into Wellington. And and when I come into the Home Loan Shop, I, I'm on it's on Manor Street. And every time I come in in the morning, on the corner of Manor and Victoria Street, there's a camera set up. And it's manned by at least one person. And it's pointing this camera at this route that only buses are allowed to use. Yeah. And I have never, in days, many, many days coming in here, seen a single car go down that route that is buses only. And that camera is there to catch people and then send them a fine. Today it blew my mind because there were three people, all with their yellow vests on, yeah, and it looked like their senior manager standing there talking to them. So four public servants, I guess, I guess they're employed by the Wellington City Council, doing something that doesn't need to be done by a human. And for me, that was like it blew my mind how unproductive that was. So there's my little story to kick the conversation yeah, off. But, so but let, let's go back a step. I can't quote statistics on this because I just don't have them. But I certainly think historically we've had more accountants and lawyers in New Zealand per capita than just about any country in the world, right? And yeah, so, and definitely more so than scientists and engineers and people yeah, that change yeah, yeah. the world. We're full of lawyers and accountants, yeah. so you know that doesn't sound like a huge amount of value add. Sorry to the lawyers and accountants out there, but um, I would hazard a guess. And again, I don't have any statistics to support this, but uh, this is anecdotal. We have more road cones per person <laughs> than anyone else on the planet, right? I mean, this this country is a country of road cones. So you talk about, you know, the number of people sitting around, the productivity. I remember I shared on the on the podcast a while ago, I shared a similar story. I was down in Queenstown and, and the CBD of Queenstown, because of COVID and they wanted to get some money into Queenstown because the tourists went there, they were like, let's do the big refurb of downtown. Mm-hmm. And so they threw money at Queenstown and it, look, all that money is just going back into the big construction firms, right? And so you go down there, and these streets took like 18 months to get done. And I, I, Annalisa, shopping, I'm down there and I'm watching, I'm watching them lay one brick. Mm. And then mm. three or four guys stand around and look at it for yeah. five or ten minutes. Yeah. Someone comes over, measures, yeah. takes a photo, da-da-da-da-da, and then there's another brick go down. Hey, that's your next door. I've got a better that. <laughs> <laughs> so in Parafaram, they've been building this sort of, it's not even a transport hub. They've just been tarting up the area around the railway station. And, and amongst that, they've put in traffic lights where there was no need. So the whole traffic flow has slowed down. They've narrowed a two-lane road to one lane, and then it goes to three lanes, and guess what happens? Um, Because it comes to an intersection, you just turn left, right, and go straight ahead. So there's this massive bottleneck that's, you know, two lanes to one, and then you've got two exits from the supermarket. Previously, it's now one, and so getting in and out of the supermarket, which is in that vicinity, and it's just like, how do these things happen? So, you know, I guess both all these examples are local authorities or central government. Is that the root of the productivity issues New Zealand has, do you think? Or maybe even wind back before that, has New Zealand got a productivity issue? Uh, yes. And the funny thing is, you know, years ago when I thought about this, I've been thinking about this for years and years, you know, you know me, I'm really driven by productivity and, and efficiency and, and I love that sort of stuff. Um, is I, I always struggled to understand it because, you know, globally, you know, we'd have all these statistics that would say New Zealand has got poor productivity. And I never really understood it because I'd look around and the people I would see, I'd be like, people work really hard mm. and they do. 
they work really hard. So how is it that we're so unproductive? And and I guess how much of our time is spent doing non-value adding activities? AML, you know, in a modern day sense, is a classic example of it. Mm. I mean, mm. we in our business we spend an exorbitant amount of time yeah. doing stuff, identifying people, and actually we've all got identities. I mean, real me was. 15 years ago, people may or may not have heard of RealMe, but when you get a passport, I think you have to use RealMe to get it. That was the platform that the whole country could use when identity was required, Mm. but it was left in government hands, and guess what? No one uses it. And so we all go and build our own solution, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we keep coming back to government. I mean, I guess a statistic is that in the last year, you know, New Zealand's economic growth has been, I don't know, 1%. We've had almost no growth a couple of quarters and, and stronger just recently. But if you look at the economic growth per capita, it's it's fallen massively because we've brought in a whole lot of immigrants. GDP's grown very mildly, but the population's grown more through immigration. And bad quality immigration. So so in other words, per capita, uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's a real-time here and now um, example of falling GDP per capita, which is falling productivity. Is maybe one of the root sources then is that, hey, when New Zealand faces a problem of not enough people to get the job done, we just go and get people from overseas rather than making more efficient, you know, generating more efficient outcomes. Is that part of the problem? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think that's it's a, a piece of it. It's not the only it. piece. So no, it's not the only piece. Look, I mean, it's all about how much value add you get into the things that you're doing, right? And I mean, we've, we've talked about that in New Zealand for ages. If all you do is produce raw resources and just ship that overseas and not put a lot of value add into it, then you know you, you can't escape this paradigm of a low wage economy. Mm. But know? hey, can't if you do that really well? Can't like Australia? Can't you have a booming economy? And you know what is wrong with exporting raw materials as opposed to adding the value in the local country, especially when you're on the other end of the world? And, yeah, yeah, dep- well, no, that's a fair call, right? Look, I guess it depends on what those raw resources are. Australia is called the lucky country for a reason because it just happens to be that, you know, it's a big sandpit mm. and they're pulling out gold, nickel, copper, mm. iron, lithium, lithium uranium, uranium, <laughs> you know, just about everything that's valuable. Um, and then there are some beautiful beaches around the coastline and some nice yeah. hillsides and, yeah. and so on. So it's a beautiful place to live if you're not in the middle of the desert, right? Yeah. yeah. I so mean, the, it's got a lot of natural resources. They're stripping their country of natural resources and they can because they go out into the desert and they don't have to worry about a lizard or a frog. They can just mm. basically dig it up and ship it overseas. Mm. You know, rightly or wrongly, and I'd say rightly, um, our environment's very important to us and we protect it. You know, mm. so look, if we went and basically ran diggers through the South Island, I'm sure we could dig up a whole lot of natural mm. resources, but mm. we're not going to do that, right? Mm. And that is certainly not the right thing for New Zealand. So our export is going to be, for us, I guess it's agriculture mostly and uh and then you know then there's a whole lot of other industries that have sort of started to build around that look tourism's been a big one for new zealand for years the thing i don't like about tourism is that and uh, and i guess you know a lot of us really enjoyed covid right it was like wow it's quite nice when there's not so many people here we all got out and walked the national parks and and we're like really enjoyed it i guess the people in rome loved it when there were all these sort of foreign terrorists sort of wandering around but then livelihoods disappeared because the economy is so but, it's a, but it's a low wage industry. You mm. know, you go to places like Japan and you look through their GDP and you see how much GDP is driven by tourism, and it is not an industry that they care about. You mm. know, they don't sit there and go, "Oh my God, tourism! It's it's kind mm. of stuffed." 
no one even knows about it, right? That's why you go to Japan and... But is it that New Zealand's natural resource is a beautiful place that people want to come and beautiful people like us? Yeah. But it's a minimum wage economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, everyone that works in tourism, everyone, that's a bit of a generalisation, but it is a low-income earner. Mm. So is, I'm uh, operating a bungee jump, I'm doing, um, I'm on a bus, you know, t- driving buses around, I'm driving a jet boat. Yeah. At the mass market end, yeah. uh, it is, you know, in aggregate, it's a big income earner for us, but the wages that are paid out there is, is basically minimum wage. And, and what you found is, I mean, tourism struggled, A, because there's not enough tourists coming in, but also they need immigrants yeah, it's people, to basically yeah. do the job because it's minimum wage. Yeah, and it's a people-driven industry, and when you haven't got people to run the bars and work in the hotels and so on, so and you're going to recruit those overseas, yeah. Yeah, and, and look at the recruitment. Uh, sorry, look at the immigration that we've had in the last six months. Right, a lot of what's coming in is minimum wage jobs. Mm. You know, mm. we're not bringing in rocket scientists and high income, high skilled jobs. Mm. A lot of this income that's been coming in in the last six months has been going into takeaway shops, mm. massage parlors, retail bars, bars. Uh, tourism, mm. uh, trucking, definitely transportation because we had real mm. issues there. And we've had issues in agri, but again, you know, farm workers, mm. um, close so to back minimum to, wage. So back to sort of productivity then, what role has technology got? Is that one of the missing ingredients? We use technology poorly. Like, are there any global examples of countries that have really become high-tech countries? You know, New Zealand's sort of there in many ways. Like, you know, I think where do workshops and zero and and yeah. and you know the, the the guys in Dunedin I can't remember the name that tracks you know the sporting events you know real time you know with GPS on boats and things like that it's not like there's no tech in New Zealand but no, is there there's, a, there's lots of tech. an example in New Zealand of a country that's in, in the world of a country or countries that have truly embraced tech and you know that are hotbeds of innovation and and so on well I think China is a, is mm. a really good example um and uh, what's really interesting in China is, you know, look, a lot, of, a lot of Asia really is that, you know, I guess, you know, they've got a really big challenge there. China's transitioning from just being, um, trying to just get everyone working and therefore being a low-wage economy with brute force, lots of people in factories, mm. to completely automating out those factories mm. uh, and a lot less people in them now, right? Mm. They're still going through this process. And I think for China... That's the answer to the aging population. Yeah, is that um, through automation and stuff, mm. they are less labour dependent yeah. Yeah. for their whole manufacturing. Yeah, I think China's center. population sort of hits a peak and starts to decline if it hasn't already because of the one-child policy that only got removed six or seven years ago. And of course, it's so ingrained in the way of life that. It's really hard to get people to have more than one child, even despite it being legal now. And we've got New Zealand businesses that have leveraged that, right? Like Zuru. I mean, they do all of their manufacturing up in in China, and Mm. it's all automated, right? Their factories Mm. are totally automated. So, Mm. I mean, look, there's really good examples of it overseas. I think there's higher levels of automation that could come into our agricultural sector and stuff. It's there already, and Mm. and the guys are using it. And arguably, with the increases in the minimum wage, with labour shortages that we've had, and there's a whole lot of factors in the high petrol and fuel costs. There's a whole lot of factors there that are actively encouraging 
uh, businesses to mm. automate. And even in, if you think about it in the context of our business, you know, we're starting to introduce AI and uh, very high levels of automation to take out administrative jobs. Mm. Um, Zero's done the same thing in the accounting space. Mm. Automation is coming into our economy in, in mm. lots of different ways. But is it happening too slowly or is there a, you know, because every country has got that, you know, you've got Silicon Valley, you know, places like Israel are very high tech sort of countries, you know, they're building services businesses as opposed to manufacturing businesses in many cases. And I guess in the horticultural sector, New Zealand is strong in terms of research into developing new varieties of apples and kiwi fruit and, and so on. We're experts in growing seedlings into pine trees and, and so on. So there's a lot going on, isn't there? I mean, is it as bad as you sort of make out that there's a lot of innovation happening right in New Zealand as there hey, in the world? Or is it just... I guess the question we came back to was, you know, what role does government play in this? Because, mm. and I look, I guess the thing is, we're a small economy. Mm. There's a scale problem here as well, right? I mean, the smaller the economy, the more likely it is to struggle to provision services into its population. So, you know, you get these really large economies like mm. the US and, mm. and you know, arguably Europe's mm. largely one economy, right? I mean, you sort of work your way backwards. Um, Australia certainly has levels of bureaucracy and high levels of, I guess, government involvement in the economy. Uh, it's got the luxury of its its resources, l- lucky country benefit. Um, but you come down to New Zealand and you look at some of the other smaller economies that are away from their marketplaces, because Europe's got lots of small economies, but they essentially all live and breathe together. And, and you know, then smaller than us, you get to the likes of Fiji. And I mean, you know how expensive it is to live in Fiji. You know, if you want a nice house, nice mm. car and stuff, it's like, wow, that's well, horrendously expensive. Everything's imported, a lot of stuff that you need in that nice house, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I, think, I think part of it is, is, is just the, the, the reality of a small economy and a lack of competition. We've talked about competition a lot, right? Because mm. competition drives innovation mm. and you just don't get it when you get this cosy relationship in a market where actually we don't want to compete too hard let's just kind of Mm. cooperate look think about roading i mean you know we've talked about supermarkets we've talked about banking we've talked about airlines you know all these industries where there's not really a high degree of competition what about roading well who pays for it the government (laughs) right we pay for it yeah right so we've got per, per kilometre to build here versus other parts of the world. We must have one of the highest per kilometre of roading rates mm-hmm. in the world. And, and like, we don't have to talk too much to this because any Kiwi knows as soon as they go for a drive, mm. they can see how inefficient. Mm. I think the here. expressway's up through Kapiti, where I live, um, was something like, I don't know, 13 million or 20 million or something ridiculous per kilometre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> so, yeah. you know, in fact, it must have been more than that because, you know, 15 kilometres of road was three or 400 million. So, yeah, but, I mean, it, it is, you know, $20 million one kilometre for a four-lane road. And, and here's the thing. With those big roading projects, the guys don't even compete with each other. Yeah. They go in in this collaborative model mm. where they sort mm. of co-tender as a group. Consortium, yeah. A consortium. Mm. And so they're not even competing mm. with each other. So that, that's always going to be the case in a small economy, though, isn't it, where you just don't have the scale. Is, or, or is it that there's a forward pipeline that's really clearly signalled over 20 years, so it encourages more businesses to be here because they know they're not dependent on the next tender and two years time you know transmission gully finishes and the next job is there already you know in the pipeline is that part of it the sort of short-termism in terms of planning i think arguably it could be that we're not doing good enough long-term planning Mm. there's not enough 
clear signaling from government in terms of predictability of mm. you know how big can I make my business? How, mm. how much resource do I need? Mm. You know, to, mm. um, so I think you're so right. Let's sort of put it this way. If government was a business, how would it perform on the share market? Terribly. It wouldn't <laughs> exist. It would have gone bankrupt. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't buy yeah. it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think it's fair to say there is no way a government or any, probably any local authority in New Zealand would have survived as a private enterprise business. No. So how right. is it then that governments and local authorities do survive. Well, they can tax, obviously, but what does it take to create a fundamentally different outcome in those businesses, if you call them that? Because they're the biggest, you know, they're, what are they, all approaching 40% of the New Zealand economy, crowding out so much else in the economy. Yeah. But what is it that means that you don't get that, that sort of private sector type capitalist sort of outcomes in government while still delivering the services, but vastly superior services? That's a really good question, right? I reckon there's a kind of a traditional left-right thing which says how, how good is business really at looking after people? And you would say not very good. I mean, look, we all go, oh, yeah, we do the ECG thing or ESG or whatever it is. But look, the reality is that some businesses are really good at it and some businesses really do have values and live those values and actually genuinely not only look after their people but the environment and yeah. you know, take on broader So you're saying that impact. we have to trust government to ensure we keep on the right tracks. That doesn't mean it needs to be inefficient, though, does it? Yeah, no, no, totally. So you go, okay, government has a role to make sure that you know, everyone's looked after in society, and I think it's really important, uh, and the environment and everything else, and then uh, and make the decisions that businesses can't make, because businesses mm. often can't make good long-term decisions. Too, too short-term, yeah. yeah. The next you, earnings. You, you've seen season. that. Like when um, the rail system was privatised, mm. mm. I mean, I yeah, was the, told... The, stock, the rail stock was run down, right? Yeah, because, yeah. yeah. And, and I think you've seen no new electrical generation in New Zealand, like dams or anything, since it was sort of moved into a more commercial model, right? They can build windmills and they can build, you know, a bit of solar and stuff, but uh, when's the last time we built a dam or... Mm. I mean, if you want to build big? a backup power station for the days it doesn't blow and the sun's not out and the dams aren't quite so full, it's an investment on behalf of the nation yeah. and no individual power company is going to build that because it's going to be unused for 90%, 95% of its life and for yep. the 5%, you know. So the government's got a role. But back to the question, though, clearly the government has many, many roles in society, but why is it so inefficient? Because, you know, it's almost like if government's inefficient, then by definition it makes the economy less efficient, you know. Yeah. The, the things that private sector has to cope for, and it doesn't act as a role model, you know. Government is the worst possible role model on most of those things, right? Yeah. They're great in terms of in theory long-term thinking but in the practice of implementing that in an efficient way that that drives sets a benchmark why is it that governments are so inefficient because you know you see it you know all these examples we've given are that and the health sector is terrible in that regard like my wife went to hospital she should have been seen that afternoon and had a mini operation instead they took three days what does it cost to have a person for three days in hospitals with nurses and all that I just looked at that experience and thought this is the most mind-blowing inefficient model and it must have tripled the cost of her treatment. Yeah. And, and so much of it was inefficiency. Someone talks to someone and then someone talks to someone else. You know, where was the app doing it all and managing yeah. it? So, you know, long story short, you know, it's incredible. How do you change that? Is it that these businesses called hospitals and things are too big? And by the way, let's amalgamate them, make them bigger still. Is it, is it the bigness thing or is it the lack of talent and leadership? I think it is a bit 
it's really comes down to culture to be right. honest. It sounds that sounds a bit soft, but um, I read a book and I can't remember what the book is now, but it talked about evolution of society over time and uh, business models that sit inside that. And there's a lot of uh, um, similarities between how businesses structure themselves and how society structures itself, right? And it talks about um, moving from sort of traditional hierarchical structures that essentially came out of um, war, because that's that's literally how men used to get controlled. Mm. And then that filtered its way into business. And so Mm. they started to build businesses like they built the military. And then it sort of evolved from there. And then you ended up with the sort of 360 degree type management structures where the employees started to feed back into that process. And Mm. they're talking about the next evolution has been quite organic, which, you know, I love holacracy, which is this idea of self-management and and getting rid of traditional management structures inside businesses and stuff. And there are businesses that are doing that now. Society isn't. Society is still transitioning out of these traditional hierarchical structures, right? But businesses move faster Mm. Um, I think what you see with government in all honesty when I reflect on it is that you're you're seeing still very traditional yes minister hierarchical structures that basically completely destroy innovation and decision making and then political decision making which is driven ideologically or what will get me the next vote as opposed to deeply analysed sort of outcomes so you know like you know, GST are fresh fruit and vegetables, stupid, for example. Right, stupid. we know that. And the finance minister said as much, and then he changed his mind because, you know, it's a political decision, right? And the, and the analysis tells you that, yeah. but it's ignored. So is the term of government one of the root issues here too? You know, three years means you've got two years, and then you're getting ready for an election. This year, year election feels like the, the most, promi- most promises that have been dished out in my memory. It's just like... Who can up you know, the stakes each time? And that's going to happen every three years, right? Is that a part of the problem? I, I think so. I, I think a short, a short election term certainly doesn't help. Mm. Just out of interest, what do you think the ideal election term? I would have thought you'd need four to five years. Four to five, to yeah. Five is the UK, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Four in Australia, I think. I think so. Um, yeah, we're I, one of the shortest in the world, and you ask us to vote for a longer term, and we say no. Yeah, because we don't trust their politicians, I suppose. We, yeah. want, we want to have our say. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, rather than have them... Because, you know, that, it's always their second term that they start doing radical shit, right? They do one term of just getting in, getting comfortable. Mm. Next term, they go a bit hard, and then they get kicked mm. out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of the problems of government is lack of business acumen amongst cabinet and, and, and leaders. Let, let's face it, right? Have you ever met someone that you respect and you go, shit, they're awesome, and they want to go into politics? <laughs> and the answer is no. It's right? rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, you could say John Key was a smart guy and a good leader and all that, and, and actually he went into politics as a public service sort of thing. But no, you've got, to, you've, you've got to be ready to abuse each other, fight with each other, take <laughs> you know, have each eggs, other eggs and dildos thrown at you. And, you know, like, why would you put yourself through that unless you had a deep sense of public service? And, and look, I, I think um, when he's getting quite a bit of vote, and I said very early on in this election process that it would be, uh, it'd mm. be a government with three parties in it. Yeah. Um, he was always coming back. And I think the thing that everyone was missing early on is just how that disenfranchised Kiwis are getting with their political options at the moment. Mm. It's mm. like, well, um, he's, he's just filling the void. He's a protest vote. Mm. Mm. He's a protest mm. vote mm. in the middle. Mm. Mm. I mean, I heard some comment today that, you know, I mean, Hipkins and the left has lost this election, there's no question of it, because it's got to be, it can only be a national act. 
and now New Zealand first, and that's not been ruled out, so it's a happening thing. So that's the government we're getting on Saturday night. By yeah. the time you listen to this, it's probably happened. But I, mean, I guess what would your wish of this incoming government, the next government, be in terms of productivity? What should be some of the things that they start to change? Because we've sort of bitched and moaned about the problems, and a lot of them emanate from government and local government who can just tax at will I, with little resistance, what would you be your wish in terms of things that will enhance New Zealand from a productivity perspective? The words that always come back to me are culture, transparency, high degrees of transparency, mm. and competition. Haven't we got the most transparent government in history? <laughs> that was the election promise, right? Yeah, 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 totally. Um, transparency, but transparency in everything, not just government. Like, mm. you know, something really radical, I don't know if you know this, but in Sweden, mm. everyone's income tax mm. is publicly published. Yeah, I sort of like that. <laughs> it's like, you know, for us, we'd be like, ooh, yeah, I don't know yeah, how yeah. comfortable I feel if my income yeah. and tax yeah. was, was yeah. published. Yeah. But talk about transparency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk and, about and, accountability. And, you know, and, and, and transparency is telling people what waiting lists are in different hospitals and all that. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, in business, we measure everything and we make informed decisions based on that. We don't always get it right and, and so on, but you've got to use data to make decisions. You've got to use research to support your decision making. And then you've got to apply the disciplines as if, you know, if you got this wrong, you'd be out of business. And I guess that's one of the problems with government. So I suppose you want more people in government and running uh, the ministries and government and so on who have that sort of private sector probably capability and experience because they've had to live in a world where efficiency and productivity is their lifeblood and you know I guess you could say with 40% of the economy being government if that doesn't apply in government guess what you're already going backwards before you go forward aren't you yeah and look there were some criticisms in New Zealand jobs for mates I hate it yeah um, I think there's too many um, deals done in the background where it, it's not actually about getting the best outcome it's about looking mm. after people mm. I think as a culture I don't think we fight enough mm. I think we're too passive we just roll over and mm. and you know it kind of like reminds me of my dog you know as soon as he knows I'm upset he just rolls over lies on his, back, <laughs> his legs in the air and um, I think honestly like Kiwis we're like that we, yeah. we just avoid we don't, I, actually we don't challenge the status quo I mean no. it reminds me of when you fought you led the charge on the triple CFA the Consumer Contracts and Credit Finance Act change which were stupid. The banks had submitted that they were and the government, you know, in its wisdom, went ahead with it. And you told them and all day this petition against it. So it's sort of that challenging the status quo from everyday New Zealanders. Yeah. But I think here's the root problem with government is that we all say, you know, we hear something and we go, oh, the government should. Like the Wellington Town Hall we hear in Wellington, you know, you know, the cost is blown out from 50 million to 500 million or something like that to repair the earthquake. And as someone said on the talk back this week, they said, well, why don't we just keep the facade and put a modern building in behind it? In hindsight, that was the right thing. What was the decision-making process before that that led to this ridiculous blowout and another three or four years to sort of complete it? You know, so where's the sort of accountability and all that um, there? Well, there's got to be, a, this is a transparency, there's got to be transparent accountability so we can learn from our mistakes, we can mm. own our mistakes and we mm. can do it better. So next. is smaller better? Like, for example, we're amalgamating all the polytechs, we're amalgamating all these sort of hospitals under this big bureaucracy. Is that smart or do you let the ones that are poorly run fail and the great ones succeed and grow? I mean, is, you know, hospitals ditto, you know? It yeah. feels to me like we're creating more bureaucracy rather than yeah. and more efficient. You know, bigger isn't more efficient. I and mean, my observation would be Squirrel, a 100-person business, 
is more efficient than my last business, Corporate Bank, a 300 person business, which is way more efficient than Westpac, a 3,000 plus person business scale, creates inefficiency unless you use technology exceptionally well. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we've probably done our dash in terms of time. Um, have we got a sort of, where have we landed? You know, what would be the key takeouts from this? <laughs> I'm still frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> rather than trying to summarise, we'll probably just leave that there and go, yeah, I mean, one thing that might change would be a longer term of government for a start. So this three yearly lolly scramble and a year of not focusing on the business of running the country, but owning the business, you know, running the business of trying to get re-elected to run the country again sort of thing, you know. But, well, yeah. an observation, I think this issue isn't a left-right issue. I mean, it is a question mark around the size of government and how government is run, but it's fundamentally, if we want to create a, a country and an economy that's got a better chance of lifting everyone up mm. significantly, mm. we've it's got to get this government. productivity thing sorted. Yeah. And it's, gonna, it's a job for everyone. It's a yeah. job for the private sector. It's a job for government. Yeah. But how often are we really letting productivity come into the conversation you know it hardly ever gets mentioned and i mean look david seymour he'll bring it up but his way of bringing it up is i'm going to get rid of five thousand you know fifty thousand people in the public sector whatever else and it's kind of like it's not a very humanistic way of thinking about this i I mean productivity is about improving the country for everyone Mm. but it's broader than that it's also about improving the environment Mm. Because, like, when we're not doing this well, there's a cost. Yeah. Hey, look, yeah. let's wait it up. It all actually starts with education too, doesn't it? A quality yes. education system delivers, you know, the people that can do the right things. Hey, that's us for another week. Uh, pretty deep and meaningful one there. I don't think we talked about property at all. So maybe we need to be back to property and interest rates next week. Let's see. Or might we talk about the election and Winston Peters' role. <laughs> we'll catch you again. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you have any questions or things you'd like us to talk about in the future, get in touch with us at david at squirrel.co.nz or john at squirrel.co.nz. And please do share this uh, and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not financial advice or a recommendation of any financial product. Any commentary provided are personal views and are not necessarily representative of the opinions of Squirrel. As always, we recommend seeking professional investment or mortgage advice before taking any action.